how about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Hello, and welcome back to the Unwasted podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. What is wellness and who is it for? Outside of the colorful, healthy smoothies and Lululemon-branded yoga classes we see on our Instagram feed, what does wellness really mean in 2020? Today's guest has a lot to teach us about the wellness world and its blind spots when it comes to racial diversity and inclusion. She argues that the world and industry of wellness has a long way to go until it truly prioritizes the health and wellness of all people. I'm really excited to dive in to a thought-provoking discussion with her today. Mariam Ajayi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right, as as well as any of us can be in 2020. Our air here in Northern <laughs> California just cleared like yesterday. So today I'm grateful for clean air. Yeah, that's, um, I think we're a couple of days ahead down here in um, yeah. LA. You know, I was walking around and I was like, oh, it's actually better today. Like you could see the sun, um, which then turns you like it's a spiral of like, wow, that was really bad. But I'm really grateful to have clean air. Yeah. It, for me, it's really felt like a hard reset of suddenly the most basic thing of literally going, being able to step outside and breathe without worrying is like, that's, that's my number one gratitude today, which I guess is, is, is healthy in a way to, to reset in that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And then it gets you thinking about like, you know, how privileged we are to be experiencing this for some of us the first time yeah. uh, when clean air, quality air, um, some people grew up in environments like that. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I don't, I don't want to spoil the episode now, but I, the, what you just said reminded me of, you know, we had Leah Thomas on the podcast to talk about intersectional environmentalism. And she brought up something that I've been thinking about a lot recently with the fires, which is that the phrase I can't breathe has taken on so many disturbing new meanings here in 2020. Obviously, you know, there's the racial injustice angle, but there's also the COVID angle of we have this deadly disease that's depriving people of the ability to breathe that's disproportionately mm-hmm. impacting people of color. And then now in California, we have in, in the whole Northwest and Oregon and Washington as well. And now it's into Idaho and who knows Canada next. Um, we have these fires that are now impeding our ability to breathe. So I feel like this year more than ever, we're just, uh, yeah, we're getting back to basics of like, wow, what are the things we were taking for granted all along? Exactly. And I, I teach breath work and I facilitate breath work. And that's what I've been saying, you know, whenever I've been teaching this year of like, it is a literal privilege to be able to breathe and to breathe on our own. It's a gift. And the breath is like a part of our innate power. Um, and just breathing is wellness and not necessarily green juice, you know, Crystals are part of wellness, you know, that that's a whole nother conversation, but it's more than retreats in the mountains. It's literally being able to breathe um, and to have access to food that makes our bodies feel nourished, feel whole, connect us to our bodies and to Mother Earth. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to dive maybe right into the deep end here with an article you contributed to in the cut entitled Wellness Doesn't Belong to White Women. And that article opens Mm -hmm. with a pretty harsh condemnation that the wellness industry has a racist or uh, sorry, the wellness industry has a racism problem. You know, what forms of racism and discrimination have you seen and experienced in the wellness industry? Um, I mean, we only have a limited amount of time, so I'll just hit the the highlights. You know, wellness, if you Google wellness um, and you look at the images that come up, um, it's very whitewashed. Um, it centers the white, heteronormative, able-bodied, skinny, white femme experience. Um, and that has perpetuated throughout the entire industry. And that's not really what wellness is. Wellness has been heavily colonized and colonization is seeing a practice and being like, I love this practice and I'm going to take it as my own and I'm not going to honor the indigenous roots of this practice. And a lot of a lot, if not all of wellness stems from indigenous cultures, Mm. um, especially black indigenous people of color is rooted in our cultures that have been stolen from us and then repackaged um, in something where we're not even represented. And it oftentimes at prices that are not accessible or equitable. Um, So one, just the rampant colonization that happens within the industry And then the, you know, exclusion of people with different identities. Um, There's so much classism. You look at these high-end studios with their prices. Yes, that touches on accessibility. But what neighborhoods are they in? Um, They're oftentimes in exclusive neighborhoods, which one already has barriers. And then you you add in pricing that excludes a lot of people, the classism that happens, um, and the consistent appropriation um, that is happening. um, And that all ties back into the colonization of it. Interesting. Yeah. When we had Leah Thomas in the podcast, she referred to Columbusing, which I thought was a really nice turn of phrase to kind of capture what you're talking about, like claiming something as new when it really existed for thousands of years. And in a way, you're just slapping a new label on it and and claiming to have discovered it, but you're not really citing your sources. Exactly. Um, That's 100% it. And if you look at something such as you know, like Moringa, which is uh, a herb. Um, you know, my friend who is Filipinx actually told me Moringa, you know, now it's like you can get this really expensive herb from these brands and all these teas and all of this stuff. And my friend told me that like in Filipinx culture, Moringa is a herb that you would go outside and it um, fills you up. So it's like if you your family didn't have enough food to put on the table or you needed to stretch uh, food, uh, you would actually go and pick the herb and make a tea so you feel full while also getting the nourishment. So that's something that you could actually go outside and pick, um, which now is being repackaged as like this amazing herbal supplement with nutrients, which it is, but mm. sometimes like, you know, where does that 
come from? What cultures do that come from? And that's just one example. Um, you look at matcha, mm. right? You look at turmeric, you know, yeah. that are all being repackaged in really expensive lattes at, you know, no offense, like blue bottle, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, to me, it sounds like it's not exactly that turmeric is problematic or matcha is problematic. It's like this weird kind of elitist cherry picking that then deposits it to an, into a totally new context, doesn't really acknowledge the sources and also kind of prices it out and packages it out of the reach of a huge chunk of people, including the people that ironically, you know, originally discovered it. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, we, we had um we had Hedal Vasavada on the podcast and she was talking about turmeric as part of Ayurveda and traditional Indian cooking. And she mm-hmm. she was just kind of laughing that it's funny to her how Western people use turmeric because they'll like throw it in these expensive lattes with like a ton of milk and a ton of sugar. And she said growing up it was it was more just like medicine. It was like something your mom kind of forced you to eat. And now you have people, you know, paying through the nose to drink a turmeric latte. And it's just in a way you almost have to laugh, like how silly we are with these supplements sometimes right yeah exactly and like you there's so many benefits to a lot of them obviously but it's like the heritage the roots of it you know not the actual roots but you know the purpose of them the meaning gets lost yeah it gets what it gets whitewashed to be yeah. quite frank yeah. I mean, your point about literally who is the face of wellness hit home for me because, you know, if you look at Instagram just as an example, I've always found it baffling and, and frustrating how when you think of an influencer, like if I close my eyes and think of an influ- influencer, it's a skinny white woman. And I've always thought yeah. that odd. It's like, are skinny white women, do they have the monopoly on being healthy? Like, obviously no. And yet, if you look at who has these platforms, that's who dominates the narrative. And I've I've always just found that baffling. And I'm curious, like, why why is that? Why, did, why is such a narrow group is, like, so overly represented in the wellness space? Yeah, I mean, it's because we're not really we've digressed so much away from like what wellness actually is. You know, I do an exercise in some of the workshops and seminars that I do around wellness and around wellness that's rooted in diversity. I have people stop and actually go to their Instagram feed and look up their top like three favorite wellness influencers. um, So they can actually see and then actually scroll through their feed Um, And for me, you know, wellness has become something that's packageable. You know, you think that because someone has great branding and a great aesthetic, you know, like they may be wearing a hat in Joshua Tree, you know, or they're surrounded by a bed of like a rose mint, like a flower mandala, you know, and they have glowing skin that they've photoshopped. Um, and they are, you know, they have a house in Topanga that that's what wellness is. Hmm. Um, and you know, you look at Instagram has influenced us so much because you go through your feed and you like photos that are very like beautiful and wellness wasn't really about like, you know, social justice is wellness, right? Mm. And so you have influencers that don't want to talk about things that are actually going on that want to be light and fluffy. um, And they're selling to a certain demographic, which are white, 
women between, you know, the ages of 18 and 45 that don't want to dig into these topics because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Hmm. When really, like, what is wellness, right? Like, wellness is being able to breathe. Wellness is having access to, you know, fair-priced, nourishing food. Wellness is taking care of your community. Wellness is taking care of marginalized communities. Like, wellness is honoring ancestral roots. Wellness is, like, acknowledging indigenous uh, cultures and sometimes that's not cute and Instagrammable. Hmm. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, a, a, a disconnect you were teasing out that I that I want to explore is it just strikes me as what mainstream wellness is seems to be obsessed with all of the fancy toys and trinkets, you know, all the supplements and like you said earlier, the retreats. Yeah, that trip to Joshua Tree, like, the, the house in Topeka. It's, yeah, it's, it's all it, the bells and whistles. But you're talking about like what is the groundwork of wellness, it sounds like. Yeah, it's the internal work, uh, right? Yeah. And so I, I beg, oh, I'd beg to, you know, ask like, how deep are some of these people truly going? Right? There's a lot of spiritual bypassing and like surface level healing, and you have healers that are Black Indigenous people of color that, like, I know personally that are doing deep rooted, deep seated healing for themselves, you know, for their communities, for their ancestors, um, that I just don't see in mainstream whitewashed wellness. Hmm. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about the whitewashing and, and wellness, you know, you've been, you mentioned it just now, you know, it, the wellness community has been weirdly silent on issues of not across the board, but largely silent on issues of racial justice, especially around COVID and how COVID is disproportionately hitting BIPOC communities. You know, I'm curious, why, why is this, is why is this silence? Is it because it's not, like you said, Instagrammable and sexy? Or like, what do you see going on there? I mean, I I think that also goes back to, you know, the cut article of it's rampant with racism. Hmm. Um, I think that there are a a lot of white supremacist racists in the wellness industry, um, and they use spiritual bypassing and holding this higher vibration of, you know, if we just love and light it, it won't exist. And it's like they don't want to look at the shadow side of themselves, you know, if if oppression, you know, I saw this quote from uh, Shadea uh, Caldwell of Black Girl Magic uh, posted something around if Black Indigenous people of color inherit, you know, oppression, you know, it's proven, you know, that trauma gets passed down and oppression is traumatic, that what is on the flip side of that for white people of mm. you inherit being the oppressor and that lives in your DNA somewhere. And so that's what I'm saying, like taking it further of like, can you trace back your roots? Like, do you have slave owners in your lineage? Mm. Can you get in touch with that part of your ancestry and go through and heal it with things like meditation and breath work, working with indigenous elders to heal those things within yeah. That's not sexy and that's not kale green juice. Do you know what I'm mm. saying? Yeah, it's, it's um, hard work. 
it's really hard work and to consistently show up and do it is really hard. I know that firsthand you uncover things that can be really upsetting and it's having the tools and the community surrounded, um, surrounding you that can get you through them. And I think that because, you know, whitewash wellness and white influencers aren't doing that deep seated root, uh, rooted work that is upholding white supremacy that is racist, you know, like you're perpetuating these things by not wanting to look at it. And then another yeah. thing that has seeped into the wellness industry has been this like QAnon adjacent rhetoric, which is very anti-Semitic and very anti-Black um, and QAnon, you know, we won't go too far into it, but, you know, QAnon is this conspiracy theory that Donald Trump is actually a light worker that is going to expose um, a satanic Hollywood cult and there are children that are living underground. And you look at that like there, you know, it's rooted in some truth of like there's a small handful of people that control the narrative of this country and the world. Yes. Yeah. We all know that. Um, but it's also taking away from the conversation that there are literally children, you know, that are sitting at the border, child trafficking and kidnapping. Like those things exist, mm -hmm. but you tie it to something that it's like this savior is coming to save us all. You're literally ignoring what's happening in front of our faces that has been happening. And it just, I think that goes to show how unwilling people are to look at their own stuff. Hmm. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, when you say that, something that occurs to me is, and maybe to, to reframe your argument from earlier, it, it, it seems like a lot of mainstream wellness is a, kind of obsessed with the consumption of wellness. Like, what are the things and experiences you can buy? Like the yoga class, the retreat, you know, the cool green juice or whatever. But what you're talking about, really, yeah, like you said, there are these internal changes that you cannot buy. And maybe that's some of the disconnect is it's a lot harder to package and sell something that really just requires internal work, introspection, and like willingness to change. Yeah. I mean, and that's capitalism too, mm. right. Of, you know, you're working, you know, when I first got into wellness, I was like, get me the green juice. Like I need to save up to work with this person that charges $500 an hour when I like can't afford that. Yeah. And I was working with so many people where they were trying to tell me that the answer laid outside of myself Yeah. with them. So you mm. keep buying you keep going to the practitioner that you can't afford. You keep buying, you know, the $15 matcha latte because your favorite influencer is like, look at how glowing my skin is with my matcha latte. You keep buying, buying, buying the crystals that are way overpriced, you know, all of these things. You keep buying, buying, buying to look outside of yourself. And when an ant, like when a practitioner is doing, this work and it's rooted in equity and accessibility um, and decolonization, they are giving you the tools to find your best healer, which is you. And you can't put a price on that. Yeah. Really well said. You know, a, a lot of, a lot of brands are having a, 
a, a woke moment right now or trying to have one right now. I'm sure you've seen it in your world and your feed. You know, I know you do some consulting and you're kind of in the know about these things. I'm curious, what are some examples of of a brand or a company, you know, waking up and, and doing this in a sincere way? And then what are some examples of how a brand or even an individual can can be making more of a superficial change when it comes to, you know, these deep deeper issues of diversity? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I'll use an example of something that we haven't announced yet that's going to be really major and really exciting with um, a brand that we were in Dive and Well was in relationship with before um, COVID hit and we had pitched them an idea and it was really slow. Um, it really wasn't going anywhere. And then the George Floyd um, uprisings happened and we had a discussion with them and they had an idea and it was very like a starting point superficial and we're like if you want to work with us you know we are not a brand and i'm not shading anyone else like how they decide to do business of like we really want to be in relationship with a brand and we want to know that they're doing the work um and that they're in relationship with people that are doing the work and here's what we think that would look like and one they listened you know, they were listening to us and they went and chewed on it and they sent something back where it's like dive in well, not only would be partnering with them on a campaign, but they're working with us internally. Um, and we also said to them, like, here's how you can support some of the things that we would like to do. Hmm. And they're also supporting us as a small business because they are a brand that has a lot of access to power and privilege. So they have our expertise, which is rooted in, you know, diversity and equity and our um, expertise in building community around these issues. But it's like they're also doing the work and then they're also supporting us. Um, and it's one of the most well-rounded partnerships that we've walked into um, because they were willing to listen and put their money where their mouth is and actually support us instead of having that like white savior complex of like trying to come in and save us. And then also not wanting to use us for like digital blackface. Mm. So it's something that like we are thrilled about that. I think that the intentionality behind it is going to have such a tremendous impact to all both of our communities and even form a greater community. Hmm. On the other hand, you know, right at the start of the uprisings, I had a brand, um, you know, reach out to me and ask if I would do an IG live to talk about these issues and how their community would benefit from my knowledge and my expertise. Hmm. And at first it was like, all of these brands are reaching out, you know, and it was like, okay. And then I'm like, let's take a step back and actually make this meaningful. How can you all with your huge audience, your huge, um, you know, proximity to power and privilege also help us in this moment? Cause we are struck, we've been struggling and now it's even harder to be a black indigenous person of color, a black indigenous person of color that owns a business, especially a black person, especially a black woman who black women, you know, the statistics around our, um, our access to any sort of support is literally less than 0.06% now, you know? Yeah. And I was met with such disdain 
that I would ask to be compensated for my time, that I would ask them to leverage their privilege to help them. Mm. And not only was I met with disdain, but then I was also retaliated against and they went and smeared my name amongst some of our peers and then with their own community to villainize me, um, which is complete white fragility. Mm. Um, It's also white violence, um, you know, because I was asking for equity. Yeah. And, you know, they've gone on to use black indigenous people of color as props um, and saying that they're doing the work but obviously like I know and people close to the issue know that they're not doing the work. Um, and so they will go on to do it surfacely. Their audience mm. will be, will have access to surface level work and no impact is actually being made. Harm is actually being made now mm. because they're not going about it the right way at all whatsoever. Um, and so that's just one instance of like, they didn't want to listen they wanted to tell, you know, uh, me, us, what to do. Um, and because they weren't willing to listen or put in the work, um, you know, things backfired. And now, you know, they're just going around creating more and more harm. Oof. Wow. Yeah, that sounds vicious. Uh, wow. Can you can you help me understand the difference between allyship and tokenization? Because this is a distinction I was trying to sort through as, you know, all of these like black squares were going around Instagram and everyone everyone I knew mm-hmm. was grappling for ways to make more than just a surface level change. You know, what is the difference between true allyship and this more superficial activism? Yeah, I mean, the superficial activism is exactly that. It's the black square. It's, you know, asking the one black person that you know to, you know, it would be like having, you know, one black person, let's have this black person on the podcast every single week to talk about these issues. But really like we are not monolithic, right? Of the black experience is so different. And then it's like black indigenous people of color. You have to look at people from different classes, from different identities, you know, sexual orientations, etc. There's so many different experiences. And what I see a lot of brands do and a lot of people do are like, here is my one cis hetero relatively attractive, able-bodied black person that I know mm-hmm. And, you know, or I'm going to pull stock images, you know, of people of color and say that we care, but really, you know, that's all we kind of know. And you don't want to like just haphazardly be reaching out to all these people that you don't know. You want to authentically build relationships, but it requires like a level of awareness and intentionality that some people aren't willing to go there. Hmm. So you look at the black indigenous people that you're supporting and you're like, does this, is this an array of people that represents a greater amount of the population? And it's a lot of hard work. Like as a black, you know, femme business owner, you know, I center BIPOC and I, hella center the black femme experience but i have to again like look at the different types of black people that i am highlighting and centering and i always have to do better 
right? I'm always looking for ways that I can be more inclusive when it comes Mm -hmm. to um, ability, when it comes to any sort of identity. I'm always pushing myself to look and uncover where my biases are. Yeah. And then how to correct. We all have biases, all of us. And it's taking the time to uncover them and figure out how you can do better and actually doing it. Yeah. You know, a lot of brands, you know, they're just fumbling knowing that they need to do it, but they're not actually like doing anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like also not expecting any one person to speak for a whole group because that's just a ludicrous expectation that's in practice ends up being pretty harmful to everybody involved. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we had Chef Mimi on the pod uh, from the Black Food and Wine Experience here in uh, the Bay Area, and she was talking a lot about this phenomenon. She said she gets she used to get a ton of work around Black History Month because everyone's like, "Oh, we want a black chef to cook black food," and she would always kind of gently push back and say, "Hey, like I'm happy to do this dinner, but like." and this has become a big part of her work, black chefs cook more than just barbecue and soul food. And like, that shouldn't be mind blowing, but for a lot of people that is itself a new thought. They're like, whoa, you're saying the black culinary experience isn't singular. And then you dig into it. And of course it's not just, you know, it's no one can be, uh, it's ludicrous to try to distill any one group or people down to just one experience. And yet a lot of us find ourselves getting caught in that cycle. And it's, uh, yeah, the breaking out of tokenization. I think it's it's really important. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's hard work, but uh, it's it's central to this to this journey we're talking about. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, I want to talk about the diversity and wellness series because it, it sounds to me like you recognize there was a lot of problems in wellness. It was kind of stuck in a bad paradigm, and you created this dinner series to kind of blaze a new trail. What what was that like? Um, yeah, so, you know, a little bit on my background, you know, I wasn't always in wellness. Um, I actually had a most of my career um, until a couple of years ago was in Republican lobbying. And there's a whole backstory on that, how I ended up there. And when I, you know, saw a lot that was very alarming and jarring. I left and I went into the tech industry. And when I was working in tech, I worked for a quote unquote social impact um, fintech company, financial tech company. And, you know, was again, saw the same, you know, systemic racism, sexism, misogyny, misogynoir happen, um, you know, as an, a high performing black woman that had opinions. And it was, you know, during, you know, the around 2015, 2016, another racial uprising that happened and being very vocal about equity was retaliated against and pushed out of my company. Basically, I left um, in early 2019. But leading up to that, as I was diving a little bit deeper into the wellness industry, I started to see the same patterns, Mm. um, the same systemic oppression. And this time it was kind of like, I don't want to just leave and, you know, leave everyone else to figure it out, which is kind of, you know, the, the last two companies I left and the industries I left, I was like, this is too much, but wellness, I was like, no, I, I, it's my duty to be a part of the change that is needed. And I wrote an article about white supremacy and wellness that picked up some traction and I had a call to action and it was like, no one, there was no, 
no one wanted to do anything about it. Some people were like, yes, you know, but it's a a problem that's way bigger than myself. And something that I did in lobbying was bringing people together, um, thought leaders together for salon dinners. And so I thought, what if I do that for the wellness industry? And Mm. so I literally just started doing research on people, making lists of people that I admired, people that I saw were doing the work, white allies that I thought would be willing to step up and do the work. And I just started inviting them to this dinner series called Diversity and Wellness, where we would talk about issues and then actually come up with action items or accountability for each other and ourselves. And people were saying, yes, or I can't come, but I'd love to come to the next. And there was so much enthusiasm, like I'm so happy that someone is doing this. And then it kind of just snowballed from there. We had our next dinner, which was twice inside. We came out to LA to do a dinner. Um, and I believe that's when we were, we were um, uh, put in touch with Imperfect. Um, we had our last dinner in LA with Mara Hoffman or hosted by Mara Hoffman. And then it at the end of it, I was collecting all of these notes that I would send around to the group. And I was like, there's so much juiciness that we could be uh, spreading out to people outside of the LA, New York bubble, you know, being in LA and New York is a privilege. And there are people all around the world that would love this information as like a guide on what direction they can go to knowing that this one direction is only serving a handful of people. And that's when we decided to turn the diversity and wellness salon dinner series into its actual company. And then we relaunched as dive in well, um, at the beginning of 2019. Um, so to keep, building our community to keep having these hard conversations and then also providing the resources to people on how you actually co-create a diverse and equitable wellness industry because there are no rules and regulation for the industry. Um, There's, there's no even, there's not even self-regulation, which you see in some industries. Um, And, you know, then COVID hit, we had planned to have twice as many dinners and go on a tour and release our eBooks. And then, you know, when all of that came crumbling down, we saw whitewash wellness kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, once again, be centered. And it was such a violent time to see COVID affect mostly black indigenous people of color. And we decided, you know, we are people that come from tech and startups and e-commerce and all of this stuff getting online is really easy for us. Let's bring this community of amazing practitioners that we've built across these two cities. And now we can reach more people and center BIPOC wellness. We'll release our resources and we're going to continue to have these hard conversations. Um, And then when the uprisings happened, people were looking for spaces that were centering diverse um, diverse people and practitioners and centering BIPOC. And that's kind of when Dive In Well, you know, 3.0 kind of started. You know, we, I always say our, our growth plan became our go plan and everything kind of just took off from there. So we're mostly been doing digital um, events and, you know, again, having more conversations that need to be had. We've had them around decolonizing wellness, decolonizing um, digital 
wellness and mental health um, around reclaiming rest, which we we've all been resistance to. And then we just had our last salon dinner, or sorry, our first salon dinner done digitally. Um, where we had Jenea FutureCon come and give um, a keynote to a group of 50 leaders and influencers in this space. And then we workshopped what intersectionality meant for the wellness industry and how we could be more intersectional with our offerings um, and, you know, create something that's more inclusive for more people because we've got a lot of work and, and ground to cover still. Yeah. That's great. I mean, you're, you're literally creating platforms for people to do the work and not just consume wellness via products and experiences, but really dig into these, uh, these deeper issues. And you're doing it now digitally, despite uh, your original model being dependent on physical things. That's a really, I mean, yeah, that's so admirable. I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, want to touch on, I want to touch on a term you brought up, which I found fascinating. And I think something we all want to unpack here, which is this idea of rest. You know, I heard a quote from you about how radical rest is this form of resistance against oppression. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, if you look at like capitalism and colonization, right, of America was built, you know, on the genocide of people and then they brought in other people and used our labor to build this country. Um, and we were never allowed to rest or were punished or killed for being rest. So if you look at black indigenous people of color, there is this resistance to resting because mm-hmm. with rest came punishment or death. Um, and capitalism, you know, on top of that, we've, you know, have this grind culture where it's like the harder you work, the more you get, the more successful you are and all of these things. And you just keep working yourself. You keep grinding because if you work harder, you get more rewards and that's capitalism, you know, and you think that you will make it to this top when really systems of oppression, you know, are only built for certain people to rise to the top. So you're playing this rat race where you're not going to win. Um, And so taking some time to just like step back and being like, it doesn't mean that you're complacent, you know, or that you, that you just do nothing. You let the world happen. It just means that like there's this balance that needs to happen because a lot of us are more than overworking ourselves because of this conditioning when really if we did less we would accomplish more if we rested we would be able to heal to really go within so it's like reclaiming our rest in itself is activism Hmm. that's Beautifully simple and also revolutionary. I think a a lot of folks have a really unhealthy relationship to both work and rest. They feel guilty about rest. They feel burnt out by work, but unable to or unwilling to stop. It's a cycle I've caught myself in dozens of times, Mm -hmm. and it's... It's tricky. So when you say something like, I guess the inverse of, of this radical rest concept is this concept you've talked about of overproductivity as a response to trauma. Is that that's this grind culture you're talking about needing to break out of? Yeah, exactly. And you look at, you know, I'm a black woman, you know, and I look at my lineage, like my mom, my grandmother, my aunts, etc. And it's like, it's keeping yourself busy. So you don't have to face what's going on. Um, 
And so, you know, for me, especially like I look at my productivity levels during a pandemic, during a racial uprising. And sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I need to stop and like figure out, okay, what am I afraid to look at? Hmm. You know, California is burning down, you know, like quite literally the West Coast is now burning down on top of all of these other things of like, oh, I'm terrified because there's so many things happening right now. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't just stop to like lay on my couch and like be with my thoughts as opposed to Zoom meeting, Zoom meeting, you know, writing this proposal, working with this client, you know, taking on, et cetera, and saying yes to everything, keeping myself busy so I don't have to sit with everything that's coming up, which is yeah. hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. We got to allow, we got to allow space as uncomfortable as it can be, especially in, in 2020, there's so many negative things to fill that mental space if you allow it. But, uh, it sounds like part of what you're saying is we, we need to allow that space because that's where healing happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I, I think that's a really a touching note to wrap up on here. I want to get to a couple um, closer questions before we let you go. Um, the first one is is just, uh, you know, digging in a bit further. What would you encourage folks to explore in more depth on their own time that we've talked about? Um, off of what we just talked about, rest. Um, yeah. okay. And your relationship with rest. Um, maybe challenge yourself to take a nap for a week straight, like every day, like schedule in a nap for yourself and see what comes up or schedule in time where you're just laying down and not doing anything, not listening to a podcast, just laying down and just seeing what comes up um, and what that reclamation does to your body. Like, how does that feel? Does it feel good? Does it bring up anxiety and really explore your your relationship with slowing down great tip i love also being challenged to take a nap that's like the best challenge this year has thrown at me <laughs> yeah and i'm like i i you know i try and lead by example because like i am a boss now but it's like i will tell people that work for me i'm like go take a nap in the middle of the day, I don't know what it would be like to work for an organization that expects people to be on for 10, 12 hours a day and perform like nothing is happening. Hmm. I think that's wild. Yeah. I mean, in full disclosure, we moved this podcast because as I understand it, your team's taking the day off tomorrow, which I think is awesome. Like good for yeah. you and a way to set boundaries and it all worked out. Like we're still talking. It's it's great. So yeah. folks, it can happen. On that note, on that note, I'm curious to hear, um, what's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think people should try? Um, hmm, a positive change that I've made in the past year. I think self-forgiveness um, and self-acceptance. Um, you know, I really explored self love a lot but um in the 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 previous years but not this like unconditional self-love which I called in um and having more compassion with myself like if I you know I think a couple of weeks ago I or was it last week during the rolling blackouts like it was just a lot where I 
just had to cancel everything because I was just like, I'm beside myself and I'm upset and I'm a human and I shouldn't feel bad for the fact that like I'm having a human experience and I just have nothing to give. Um, and being okay with that instead of like beating up on myself that, you know, I'm letting my emotion show or that I can't high level perform in a pandemic, you know, during a climate crisis, during a racial uprising. Um, and just like literally like hugging myself or putting my hand over my heart or just when I hear some of that negative self-talk come up, being like, I forgive myself. Hmm. Super powerful. Mm-hmm. If you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? A roasted chicken. Oof. Strong answer. Yeah. Um, I know that there's the engagement chicken, but I'm, I've never been engaged. Um, and I think I make a mean roasted chicken that, you know, one day the right person will come along and put a ring on it after. That's awesome. Do you have any tips to share for how to roast a chicken properly that you've found? Um, well, I think it, it, actually requires like a lot of fat so like if you use like oil or butter um you know i tend to lean on the oil side i've fallen in love with avocado oil Mm. um you know salt fat acid lemon rosemary salt um i love trader joe's 21 seasoning it doesn't have good yeah yeah. it's so good i feel like it's a silent killer um (laughs) and then also like literally putting you know i practice reiki which is a japanese healing modality but like even if you don't do all of that but like literally putting love into your chicken while you're like cooking it um and you know, midway through roasting it, 400 until it's done, but like basting it, keeping it juicy. Wow. I'm officially hungry. You should probably serve it with mashed potatoes, but that's a whole nother thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Amazing. Uh, What is your go-to karaoke song? Um... Oh, let's see. Kiss by a Rose from Seal is always a crowd favorite. Ooh, but you have one. to really perform it. You know, uh, one of the most epic performances I had with Kiss by a Rose, I had two of my friends sing Back Up, and I actually, like, there were a lot of high kicks and rolling on the floor and knee slides and high fives and you know finding a fan a fan favorite and pulling them onto stage so you have to like really go for it wow talk about making time for radical rest i don't i don't know what's more restorative (laughs) than a good sing sing along with some friends that sounds awesome (laughs) yeah uh finally here what are you grateful for this week what am i grateful for this week um i'm grateful that my brother is here in LA. Um, You know, he came over and he asked me what I needed and he washed my dishes and literally gave me a foot massage because that's what I needed. And then we watched TV on the couch and did absolutely nothing. We were like going to go for a walk. And I was like, let's do nothing but eat (laughs) tacos, talk and hang out, which was amazing. And my mom is coming next week. Awesome. So after being in kind of a deep quarantine for the past six, seven months, it's nice to see some familiar faces and some family. 
Absolutely. Mario Majai, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? Um, you can follow me on Instagram, which is at Mariam Ajayi. Um, my website is mariamajayi.com. Um, and I would love any support for Dive In Well, which is at Dive In Well on Instagram and diveinwell.com. We have so many resources. Um, we hold a ton of moving events. So attend our events, check out our resources, you know, look at the people that we follow, support our community. You know, I I say nothing without community and our community is so rich um, and are doing such amazing work. So really support the people that are within our orbit. Amazing. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today on the show notes and on our website, thewholecarrot.com, where this podcast and all of our podcasts will live. So if you enjoyed this one, give it a, check it out, give it a listen. Mary Majai, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you for having me. 